Hi everyone, I'm Summer. I'm Carrie. And this is Hypoxia Podcast. Join us to talk about sex, drugs, and self-improvement. Tell us about your trip. Did you get to go to the... Oh God, yeah, I went to tons of places in Oakland. It was my first time really being there. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some family that lives like in Stockton, which is like a little bit east of, of Oakland. And I have some family that lives in Vallejo, which is like a small town. Um, about a half hour north of it, but I never really spent a whole lot of time in Oakland. And so uh, I had a chance to go out there and, you know, see things, do a bit of work and that sort of stuff. And uh, I've been to San Francisco quite a few times, but never really Oakland. And so it was nice to be able to get there and see um, the difference in the in the cities. And like there's a, to me, like there's a really big difference between the way that San Francisco kind of looks and feels compared to like Oakland. Oakland is definitely a bit more diverse, um, a bit more real. Um, you can still see all the gentrification that goes along with it, with, you know, tearing down homes and building up these new condos and apartments and that sort of thing. But it's also next to uh, an abandoned lot with a burnt out car in it as well. And so in, in 10 years, I think Oakland will be pretty unrecognizable. But for now, you can still kind of see a lot of it. Um, but I really wanted to get there and check out, uh, you know, Black Panther stuff and just kind of see like the culture and everything around there. And, um, I mean, quite a few things stuck out to me. And like, I think one of the first ones that stuck out to me was um, one thing that I really like about living in LA is like the chance to like see the different murals that people create um, around different topics and different uh, cities and, and cultures and things like that. And they have a lot of that in Oakland as well. And so uh, tons of murals to uh, Latinx folks, indigenous folks, black folks, Asian folks. And so it was really cool to see that part. Um, but also one of the things that I noticed with the bunch of murals that I kind of walked around and drove around and saw was um, one, how many of them were dedicated to folks who'd been killed by the police, the police brutality. Um, how many of them were actually killed during COVID? Because a lot of the, the the murals kind of reflected people wearing masks, um, which was still just, I mean, shitty, like police really had nothing else better to do at that point in time just to go out there and kill people. Um, but in, in being able to go out and kind of do some research and, and check out uh, like the origins of the Black Panther Party, like you came across this like some of information and some of it is stuff that like I'm sure a lot of people do know, um, but it is really important to have it like kind of pointed out and the fact that like Oakland is really proud to to have like the Black Panther Party there and to uh, to like be the, the hub of it is something that's really cool to see. Like there's still people there that have connections to it um, and still celebrate in many ways they possibly can, whether it's through murals um, I went to a, a house that was uh, one of the first Black Panther headquarters that is um, that has like murals that are all the way across it that, that are dedicated to specifically women of the Black Panther Party, um, which was really great to see. Uh, they have like the, the Oakland County Museum that's there that has like a whole wing that's dedicated to the Black Panther Party and sort of like the uprisings and things of that nature, um, which is really great. Um, but I guess to give like a little bit of background on the Black Panther Party is like, um, one, it was started in like 1966 um, and it only went until like 1982. So it's only got like a 16 year history and yet and still like their ideas and legacy really do kind of live on. Um, and it was started by by two dudes um, named Bobby Seale and Huey Newton who uh, really decided to come together while they were in college um, for like the, the common goal of trying to stop and combat police brutality, which of course is a, uh, no secret, and uh, still something that we deal with today. Um, I think if you were to ask like anybody, like kind of like, what is their image of the Black Panther Party like in their head? If you were to close their eyes and say like Black Panther Party, like um, what would come up for y'all? 
Like, if I said that, like, hey, like, if you close your eyes and think about the Black Panther Party, like, what are some of the, the images that kind of pop up in your head? Like, what would they be? I honestly, um, like, didn't even learn about the party, like, in history classes. So I was, like, very ignorant about it. Like, I didn't know, really. <laughs> For me, it's that um, the pictures of them with the... Um, the bags out on the of the for the food, the meals. Yeah, yeah. and see, and and that's one of them, and, and like, and that was something that was started um, as a, as a result of the Black Panther Party early in the in the mid nineteen sixties when they first got off the ground was like them trying to create programs that would uplift their communities, um, and some of that was like giving out free food to people that were poor and homeless and houseless. Uh, part of that was also them starting like a, a free breakfast, lunch, and like afternoon snack program. For the community schools that were in the area which is like one of their biggest lasting legacies i mean uh, most public schools now um especially here in california maybe in most places across the country offer some sort of um you know free lunch program for kids and like that wasn't started until the black panther party did it in oakland and it began to spread after that um and then the other one that i think comes to a lot of people's heads and, and minds is like uh these black panthers with their afros and their berets um with guns in their hands and that ends up being another one which is um interesting and also in a way has also kind of uh colored the way that people see the black panther party um one of those kind of famous pictures is them kind of on the steps of the alameda courthouse um in which they are there trying to um uh, reject the mulford act um which one of the things that the black panther party did when they first started was uh they trained people how to like legally obtain guns and actually use them um a lot of people don't realize that but like in the 1960s like california was an open carry state much in the same way that like Texas is. Um, you could literally walk into a store and carry your gun on your hip and nobody would say a damn thing to you. Um, and so Bobby Steele and Huey Newton and other Black Panther Party members um, took those rules and, and used them for themselves. So like, instead of them allowing the cops to just be the ones that, that carried guns and harassed them and beat them and killed them, uh, they carried their own guns too. And it only took a year of the Black Panthers actually doing that before our then governor uh, Ronald Reagan decided to pass the Mulford Act in 1967, which limited or banned like open carry guns, which is why today, like, you can't actually carry a gun in California. And like, they didn't do that because, you know, they thought guns were a problem. They did it because they thought that Black people having rights and intelligence and knowing how to use a law and carry open and carry guns uh, ended up being a problem. Um, things like that ended up propelling uh ronald reagan into the presidency in the 80s which is a whole nother topic for a whole nother day because fuck that guy um but yeah like and even that little lasting image even though the black panther party lasted for 16 years like that one image from the first year of their existence is kind of like one of those big things that like people think of whenever you google and type it in or um close your eyes and kind of think about it um and in that way like it has really colored the way that people see the black panther party um you know, you also had like in the late 60s with like uh, J. Edgar Hoover um, and the FBI. And, and the, I think the quote that, that he said was that uh, the Black Panther Party was the greatest threat to the um, national security of the country. Um, and so he ended up adopting this this uh, this program called Contel Pro, in which he actually had um, Black folks that would try to infiltrate the Black Panther Party in order to gain secrets, to try to bring it down from the inside um, and things of that nature. And it definitely had... Um, uh, an effect and definitely did some uh, some damage to the Black Panther Party, which is another reason why it only lasted for 16 years. Um, but yeah, um, one of the other great things that I was able to kind of learn on my trip was 
uh, just the amount of like women that were involved in the Black Panther Party itself. Um, at one point in time, um, two thirds and even close to 70% of the members of the Black Panther Party were women. Um, the first woman that the, the first woman that actually uh, signed up for the Black Panther Party was a 16-year-old girl, and uh, her name was like uh, Joan Tarika Lewis, um, and she signed up in 1967. Um, some of the other famous like Black women that were involved in the Black Panther Party were uh, Kathleen Cleaver and uh, Erica Hudgens, uh, which is one of the people that actually started up like the, the first Oakland like um, community school that Black Panther Party ran that created the free lunch programs for people. Um, Asada Shakur, which is uh, Tupac's mom. And then um, probably everybody knows Dr. Angela Davis, but she was a, a famous member as well. Um, but it's uh, it was really incredible to see all of the work that they had done and that they tried to do to make the Black Panther Party uh, relevant and actually truly help folks, whether it was uh, free programs for food. Um, one thing that I didn't know also was the fact that they actually had a uh, a manufacturing place where they actually made shoes and gave shoes out to people that were poor and in houses. Um, uh, free healthcare, um, testing for sickle cell anemia, which is something that 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 uh, hampers Black folks all the time. Um, even in the in the late seventies, early eighties, right before the Black Panther Party closed, uh, they were doing free testing for HIV and AIDS, um, which is something that was cut at the cut a cutting edge, and, and uh, most people were not doing whatsoever. Um, my gosh, what else? They um, publicly spoke out against the Vietnam War. Uh, they were one of the first groups out there that realized that Black folks that were going to Vietnam War were dying at a higher rate than um, other people in the military. And it wasn't until some of their vocal outcries and protests um, that uh, our military decided to stop sending Black men to the front line and actually dying for us and for our country. Um, and that was also something that was really interesting because in, in those ways, like the Black Panther Party and Martin Luther King Jr. were really locking step with that idea. Um, people back then in the late 60s at the Vietnam War starting off actually hated Martin Luther King Jr. because he was telling Black folks not to go. And a lot of Black folks thought like, this is our time to go ahead and get paid to fight for our country, to show people how American we really are and that, you know, we can fight for this country and love it just as much as white folks do. And uh, him and then the Black Panther Party kind of stepped up alongside of him. And uh, told people about like the harsh realities of that, which was, was like, you know, America really wants you to go to Vietnam so that way they can put you in the army and literally die for this country at higher rates than everybody else is. And it wasn't until they came out kind of alongside of them that people began to take a step back and actually really look at that. Um, gosh, what else they do? Um, education, they provided legal aid, um, transportation to people to get to and from work. Um, armed transportation and protection for, for Black folks, especially the elder women and men trying to get to and from work. Um, they had like a, they also had like their own ambulance service. So when people needed medical attention, they could actually like call a number, get an ambulance service to take them to the hospital. Because as we know, even today, getting in an ambulance is expensive as shit. There are tons of people today that will uh, be dying and literally not call because they don't want to have to ride in an ambulance. So they try to get there on their own because they know how expensive it is. Um, Uber. <laughs> yes, I have yeah. taken an Uber when I should have taken an ambulance before. And that's stuff that I think about myself too. Like, if, if I were really in trouble, like, would I call nine one one or would I just try to like either call an Uber, or get in the car, and try to drive myself? Like, the fact that you even have to think about that in supposedly the greatest country in the world is it's fucking ridiculous. Um, but yeah, but like to to see all the good work that they tried to do um, and see all the work that they actually did do, and to see the fact that like. By 1982, the Black Panther Party was was done and gone, never to kind of be resurrected again. 
and to still see a lot of the the horrible publicity and in um the fear mongering that goes around them is uh it's really disheartening but i guess it kind of speaks a lot of stuff that we were talking about earlier and how people come up with these sort of uh bullshit talking points and they just kind of rehash them over and over and over again and uh for the black panther party it's no different um I think one of the things that we do the country for people that are, are not really well versed on history and organizations, as I think that one of the, the natural comparisons people want to make to the Black Panther Party is the KKK. And uh, it can't be any further from the truth. Like they they try to equate being pro-Black with white supremacy. And those are two totally different things. Like one, one group completely tried to uplift their community and empower folks. And uh, the KKK really tried to, to build a community based off of terror. And killing and burning fucking crosses on people's lawns. Um, but to a lot of white folks in this country, to them, they look at them as the same thing because they really think that like the Black Panther Party was out there telling people to go kill white folks, which wasn't anything that ever happened. Like they were really trying to create a, uh, a community amongst themselves in which they can empower themselves and protect themselves against um, the police in particular. And uh, you know, like that's something that I wish more people actually knew. And there's, um, I mean, there's tons of places that you can go in order to find information about the Black Panther Party. Again, like Google is always going to be our friend. Um, the information's out there if you really actually want to go out there and find it. Um, but it just takes effort and it takes not wanting to, uh, to, I guess, listen to what's always kind of thrown out there amongst people. And it takes you not just looking at the images of Black folks holding guns because that shouldn't have actually worried anybody. Because when we see images of white folks holding guns today, we think of that as being liberating or great or well within their rights. Um, but something's always good until black and brown folks try to do it. And then after that, it's it's now a threat. Um, but it's always interesting kind of how that works out for itself. Um, but yeah, but like my my trip to Oakland was really incredible and it was really eye-opening. It was uh, it was amazing to see the, the love that that community still has for the Black Panther Party. Um, I mean, 40 years later, it's... it's 2023 and uh people out there are still um you know wearing their shirts and uh putting up murals and um one of the places that i went to was uh the black panther women mini museum which was one of the houses that was one of the first headquarters and it's ran by uh the owner of the house and the curator uh, her name is jill um and uh you call you set up an appointment you get to kind of go through the house and look at different uh bits of information primary source documents um you know, covers of magazines they have there. And it's it's incredible. The The museum itself is free of charge. She asked for a donation or you can buy um, stickers or a sweater or a t-shirt or anything like that. And um, she really does run it because she absolutely loves doing it. And she she's always loved um, the importance of the Black Panther Party itself. And um, she bought that house, uh, I believe, before the pandemic. And actually had somebody kind of renting it out and kind of living there. And then they moved out in the middle of it. And then that's when she decided, kind of decided um, throughout the uprisings that she was going to turn that house into um, a museum and a memorial for the Black Panther Party, in particular women. And so she actually painted the house all white to get it all primered. And then she went out and um, contacted a bunch of uh, lady artists in order to try to figure out like what they were going to try to do with the, with the, uh, the house and the canvas. And they ended up creating something that is um amazing it sits on the corner um in the neighborhood um you can't miss it even if you tried and uh even talking to her after i went through the museum and kind of went through and asked her questions um one of the things that i asked her was like how much pushback did she receive from people um around and uh 
you know, to her credit, she was like, one, like, I didn't have to ask anybody's permission. Like, I didn't have to ask the city. We didn't do anything illegal. But she was like, but the people that I did ask, because she's like, I asked the elders that had lived in the community for 20, 30, 40 years, how they would feel if I did this. Because she was like, those were the only people's permission that I needed. Because they lived through all this stuff and they'd seen all of it. And she was like, and if they were going to allow me to do it, then to me, she was like, I could give a damn what anybody else thought. And she said she she talked to each and every one of them. They all said yes. And so she went ahead forward with it. And um, literally, this woman has given her her adult life to educating folks about the Black Panther Party. And it is admirable. And it is uh, amazing. And she leads the tours by herself. Um, again, all you have to do is call or text her and set up a time. And she's there to meet you with open arms. Um, as I was walking in, there was a, an older white couple that was walking out of the museum in which they were talking. And um, she was telling them about other murals and other stops along the way that they could go to to see and learn more about it. Um, but like to me, like that is like the living legacy um, of the Black Panther Party. Like it was about community and education and empowering. And to see Jill doing that every day, um, you know, was incredible. And, it, and it's uh, it's inspirational. So, what did you say the name of the museum was that she runs? Uh, it's called the Black Panther uh, Women Mini Museum. Um, people can go to the website. It's called uh, westoaklandmuralproject.org. And uh, from there, you can get a hold of Jill and send an email or text message in order to uh, set up a time to go and visit. But it's uh, it's worth it. And again, like it's free and like you can show up at it all times of the day and she's there to constantly lead people and, and help out and to educate and empower and uplift. And, um, you know, she has set out on that work and she is unapologetic with it. And uh, like that is what the Black Panther Party, like in my opinion, should be about. So I want to see pictures of the murals. <laughs> yeah, like if, if you go to the to the website, like you'll see it. Even if you just type up like Black Panther Party house mural or something like that, it'll pop up and it's a bright blue house and it's got pictures all around it. Like, yeah, like you you can't miss it. It's it's incredible. Wow. That sounds wonderful. I, want I think to me and Carrie need to make a trip to California now. Yeah. Can we? <laughs> sure, we can figure it out. It's a, it's a nice drive. Like I I drove from LA to Oakland and it took me like five hours. It was a nice trip up and a nice trip back to, you know, kind of go through the sent to the middle part of of California and kind of see farmland and cows and all that other shit that I don't see living in LA. Uh, <laughs> so it was, it was a good drive. I got to listen to some podcasts. Um, did you listen to our podcast? <laughs> no, I didn't. The, the podcast that I did listen to was, uh, you know, as we were talking about uh, affirmative action Supreme Court early, I, I listened to the slow burn um, episodes on Clarence Thomas. That fucking guy. Oh, that guy. <laughs> incredible. I'm, but the first two episodes start off about like his early life. I'm like, that dude was about as pro-black as you could be. And like, once he got to, to law school and got to Yale, like, shit changed for him like he realized that he can make more money and, and climb the ladder faster with like republicans literally trying to tell him the idea of like affirmative action and uplifting black folks and giving out handouts was not something that a black folk should want and that is a part of like clarence thomas today like he doesn't believe in affirmative action because he thinks that like people should be able to do it all on their own and uh that would be cool if we could actually do that as like a, a whole group of people, except the fact that we can't. Um, and like, I, I can see parts of his logic, but there's tons and tons of holes in it. And the biggest hole in it is the fact that like, white folks that created this country created their own social networks 
and, and safety networks. And, and they created their own forms of socialism and affirmative action and still do, but we don't get to call that shit out. I mean, legacy admissions are affirmative action. And, uh, you know, the, the bailout of banks in 2008 is a form of affirmative action and, you know, socialism and all that other shit that, like, he probably would never want to talk about and doesn't want to see. But, like, those are all the holes in his argument. But um, that dude at one point in time was a part of the Black Panther Party. Like, there are, there are pictures out there of Clarence Thomas with a fucking afro, like, being pro-Black as hell. Like, one of the friends from the from the uh, podcast talked about like going to his house and seeing like when you walk in, like there's a picture of Malcolm X, like a poster of Malcolm X on his wall. Like he used to be that guy. And then shit went sideways, which is a uh, really fucking sad. And again, every place that Terrence Thompson has gotten to has been a part of affirmative action, but he doesn't want to uh, admit that or doesn't like to acknowledge that, but he's taken those steps all, all the way to the Supreme court. Yeah, that's kind of his little mini connection to the Black Panther Party, which I thought was uh, really interesting. Was there anything like in a happy kind of way that was surprising that you learned while you were there about them? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think in talking to Jill and some other folks around, it's it's really important to think about the Black Panther Party and their achievements as, as far as like what they've kind of left for everybody to kind of take along with them. Um, and learning about the Black Panther Party as a, as a form of empowerment and not like a, a detriment. Like one of the points that she made that I thought was really interesting and in kind of talking about Black history in America, um, we started talking about like the, like the lasting impact of, of slavery. And she was like, yeah, like, I don't, I don't like to talk about slavery itself because she was like, slavery to me is white history. Like, that's something that was done to us. Um, she was like, yeah, like the Black Panther Party started as as a um, as a reaction to police brutality in the, in the neighborhood and in Oakland. But she was like, but out of that came the sense of empowerment and proactiveness that they didn't have to do if they didn't want to, but they chose to. They could have left this at, you know, just opposing police brutality in the neighborhood. But instead, they like extended that to healthcare programs, uh, education, free lunch programs itself. Uh, providing food and, and shelter and shoes for people. Um, and those were the parts that like of black history that we should learn to begin to celebrate and think about and not just think about everything that happens to us, but the things that we go out there and make happen um, ourselves. And, and, and even talking about the, uh, like the Oakland community school that they created in, in the you know, early 1970s that lasted up until the Black Panther Party like shut down in 1982. Um, I went by the place where, where that school was. And today it's a, it's a, I think it's a Baptist church or something like that, but you can still see the way that it was set up. And like, there's a lot of outdoor space, uh, for kids to kind of run around and play. Um, they really did have like a, a typical curriculum, in which you learn like math and science and, um, social studies and English and did PE and learned how to play. Um, at the school, they got three females a day. Um, and one of the things that the, that the founder of the school, Erica Huggins, uh, said was um, the fact that like they taught children how to think and not exactly what to think. And that was an eye-opening experience. Like that's hopefully the things that we would like for kids to kind of learn today. Like we shouldn't have to teach kids, you know, what to believe. We should teach them how to think and let them make up their minds for themselves. And even doing that in the 1970s was really revolutionary because there's schools out there that are trying to do that now. And again, it's 2023, but she was doing that in 1973 when people were walking around with Afros and shit and black and white TV, which 
um, a lot of what the Black Panthers did was kind of ahead of its time. And unfortunately, um, a lot of what they tried to do are things that we still need within all of our communities. Like we still need access to free healthcare and uh, testing and better school systems and a better way of learning. Um, we still need to help out people that are less fortunate and houseless and people that are poor. And it's, that part is uh, frustrating to know that like they set out to do this in the 1960s and it's 2023 and we still need all the same sorts of services and programs um, today. You would think that like, we could have learned from that and that the country itself could have learned from that. And instead, you know, our country and our politicians and a lot of people in our country just haven't and they don't want to until it comes on their doorstep and then it's a problem. But by then it's like, like where we would be if they had been, you know, able to continue. Yeah, I mean, but it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier when you're talking about like society going back to the way that like First Nations and, and Indigenous groups had it. Like, sure, nothing is ever perfect and we get it. And, even in the Black Panther Party, nothing is perfect. Like they still had, you know, forms of colorism that kind of infiltrated the, the organization and they still had, you know, sexism that went around and, and, and things of that nature. And so like, nothing is ever perfect and I don't want to ever make it seem that way. Um, but there were different groups of people like indigenous folks, like the Black Panther Party that were still doing things better than most. Um, and those would have been great foundational pieces to actually start and kind of move and, and move forward from. Um, and instead, we were kind of stuck in, in our system of life that we have today. And it's it's uh, it's unfortunate because it, it hurts more people than it helps. But uh, it's always interesting to kind of think of to like where we could be today if we taken over more indigenous practices from natives and, and, and indigenous folks. And um, what we could have actually done if we had actually taken from the 1960s and the Black Panther Party and what they tried to push forward in each community. Um, and granted, maybe the government wouldn't have necessarily like stepped forward with that. Uh, but other communities, you know, across America and across the world could have like sustained some of that. And uh, we just really, we just really haven't. It would be nice, like, if stuff like that, like, if they have been able to continue to see stuff like that happen in like rural communities that don't have a lot of resources, like, how much good it could do for them, like, not even just like in big cities. Yeah. And, and those are some of the places that probably need it the most. Um, where you are kind of far from bigger cities and where it is more important to actually build some community. Um, I mean, I, I think I was looking at uh, an article either last week or the week before that, where we're talking about different parts of America that are still trying to get like broadband and internet services to, to areas. And again, like it's 2023 and like yeah. people in America, like millions of people in America don't have like access to consistent Wi-Fi and consistent internet access or just aren't on the grid. And to me, like that's, that's ridiculous. Like we should be better than that. And like real communities like could use um, a lot of this, but it also takes money and, and it takes uh, a plan and it also takes assistance and help. And uh, those aren't things that are easy to come by. I think this would be a good moment to point out that the Supreme Court just said that they, the government doesn't have an obligation to help the Diné people figure out how to provide water to their citizens so yeah we're, we're going backwards so i was yeah. learning about that uh from also just um i don't know why i get all of my information from tiktok i'm so sorry <laughs> but there is a woman that i follow on tiktok and i cannot remember my her name off the top of my head um but she is um she's 
um, today and lives in, is it Arizona or New Mexico? Uh, well, their res goes into both, but most of it's Arizona, so probably there. I, I think it's Arizona. I want to say it's Arizona, but she was, like, talking about it and she showed, like, like the mines and stuff where they were, like, going for like the uranium or whatever it was that was radioactive and like showed pictures of like the water and like the videos of like water coming out of the sinks and stuff like that's I feel like that's just like something that our government should be doing like as a government for the people like in the country that they're supposed to serve (laughs) like right and instead they actively oppose every attempt to make those things you know because like you were talking about all these programs that the black panther party have and we still look at those and we discuss those a lot in our community and when we're setting setting up programs and stuff i think that's why i always think of that them with the food program because i think that really changed my life when i was young i saw that and i'm like we okay we can you know make at least small efforts even though you know the the powers that be aren't going to do it and we you know and we continue to do their the things that they did is still a model for a lot of community um organizing that's done and i don't think a lot of people realize how much organized effort goes in from those in power to stop those efforts like they continually put hurdles in the way and they will continually do whatever they have to, to stop it. Like we had um, established sovereign community school, for example, we got it chartered. It was a long, very hard battle, got it chartered, but it was a very close, um, very close vote. And then the makeup of the board shifted. And as soon as we got the new, um, superintendent, I knew it was over because the previous one had been the deciding vote. And then they put in, in t- continual hurdles in place saying, well, you're not making enough money. We don't see this as sustainable. You know, we're showing testing scores going up. We're showing the success. And they're still saying, well, no, you're, you're just not meeting. You're not meeting. And they kept, kept uh, you know, chain, moving the goalposts, right? And to the point that they actually had a foundation established to guarantee the financing of the school into the future. And that was still not enough. And that's unprecedented. No school has ever been required to do that in the state of Oklahoma. And even that wasn't enough. And they closed the school and they had to vacate the property. I think last week they had to be out. It'll it'll never be enough. And, and like shit like that is, is heartbreaking because at the end of the day, like, People living in America should have access to like all the basic things. We should have access to healthy food. We should have access to clean water. We should have access to healthcare. We should have access to housing. We should have access to an education. Like without those building blocks, like what what good is anything else that we're trying to do? And uh, it's unfortunate that like we should have those sorts of uh, foundational pieces to our life. And yet and still like our government does whatever they can in order to make those things more and more harder to obtain. I mean, whether it is the Supreme Court ruling that, like, the government shouldn't have to be on the hook for clean water. Like, the fuck are you talking about? Like, shouldn't be responsible for clean water. Like, again, Carrie, like you were saying, like, y'all, y'all the government, like, you're supposed to be here to actually serve the people. And yet, and still, like, you're not. You're just, you're not. Like, you all 
every one of them is is derelict in their duty and in their charge. And um, it's unfortunate because I think that there are probably some politicians out there that want to do well and, and mean to, but you never make it as high as you can because in order to assign, ascend to any of those areas of like real power, you've got to compromise and give up so many parts of yourself that by the time you get there, like you're a shell of what you were. Um, and I think that like for the majority of these politicians, like they don't get in to help us. They get in to help themselves and make money, which is why most of them are able to walk in to politics at, at one sort of, um, you know, economic status and they walk out at a totally different one. And it's never lower than when they walk in and that's not on accident either. Yeah, I, like, like water and food are just like basic needs for everybody. So I don't, it just, it makes me so mad. Like, <laughs> But that's the thing, if, if they keep us worried about where we're we gonna get our next meal from and where we're we gonna get clean water and how we're we gonna get an education and how are we gonna get you know access to medical care and, and how are we gonna get access to housing? That means that we're focused on all of that and we can't focus on anything else. Like it's it's a game meant to completely exhaust this entire out to the point of non-existence and death. And like, and that's that's kind of what it boils down to. We don't have time to worry about politics. We gotta worry about where we're we gonna eat tomorrow. Or we don't have time to worry about, you know. The local city council election, which was something else the Black Panther Party was big on, which was trying to build from local uh, elections instead of national ones. But if you can't worry about the school board or the city council election that are happening next week, because you got to worry about where you're going to live next month, um, you don't get a say so. You're too busy running the race and not actually getting enough time to actually see everything for what it is. That's another thing I don't get is like the whole housing thing. Like, why can't just everybody have a house? Like, it's we could. There's enough housing in America. Capitalism. <laughs> like, <laughs> capitalism can go fuck itself. I don't. <laughs> that that is. That's always my happy. answer. Yeah. That's it. Capitalism is always the final answer. There you I, go. Yes. I feel like I know you that. You want to know what's wrong? It's capitalism. It. I don't want to accept it. I don't accept that. <laughs> yeah, but there's enough housing in America to, to house everybody, but it's not affordable. I mean, even here in LA, like we have. The, the largest population of, of unhoused people in the country. And we have more vacancies in apartments, condos, luxury apartments, houses in LA County than we actually have like houseless people. Like we could put one of them in each one of those places and still have room left over, but we don't because it's not gonna make the developers the money that they wanna make. And you know, our city, even though we have a surplus of a few billion dollars, like we're not willing to invest that money into actually you know, fixing the problem. We'd rather just go ahead and complain about it. And every politician would rather like to run on the campaign of fixing it and then never actually fix it. Um, like there's um, a giant office building in like Midtown, Oklahoma City uh, that is completely vacant. They could easily turn it into like small apartments for unhoused people, but. Yeah. You tell me they couldn't retrofit that to make it like a, a residential zoning area for a building like with insulation and water and heat and everything else and they could make it dorm style even like have yeah. like community showers community kitchens like easily but and i'm pretty sure that building would fit like the majority of unhoused people in oklahoma city honestly like yeah, hire people huge. to go ahead and work it you go ahead and, and put in you know healthcare on some of the earlier floors or whatever else in order to make sure that like people are getting access to that sort of stuff um but no but they They'd rather not do that. They'd rather spend money on stupid shit. There's a program in Oklahoma City called Pivot, and they do like tiny homes for 
um, children that are like without their parents or family for whatever reason. And they do like the tiny home situation and they have people that work 24 seven that are like um, crisis trained and they're trained to like help kids find jobs and help them like figure out how to be an adult. And I think like if we just had programs like that for even just like unhoused adults, it would be great. Yeah, they're, they serve youth 16 to 23, I think, 24. Yeah, and um, unfortunately, they are the only DHS-approved um, youth shelter in the state. So they have, like... They, they, they can't keep up with the demand. We need more programs like that, but we're not getting them. I think they have... The last time I talked to them, I think they said they had... 24 tiny homes and I think they said they were in the process of building 12 more when I talked to them a couple months ago so like they're trying but it's just hard like to get funding for it it's hard to like keep the staff for it because they can't pay them like a ton and they have to deal with a ton of shit like they have to go through like the DHS stuff with the kids. They have to deal with like kids that have behavioral issues for like one reason or another, like trying to teach kids like and young adults, like how to find a job and just like cook and do household, like daily things. Like it's hard, but worth it. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Like it comes down to, to money and it comes down to that, to that big old C word that somebody keeps saying capitalism. Like, we have the money here to actually fund these programs, but yet and still they make these programs, they give them a few pennies from the state or, or from the local government. And then after that, you've got to go out there and fundraise the rest. And that still comes with, you know, not being able to pay your staff very much because you have uh, high operating costs. Um, and then it also comes with like all the other work that has to get done. Like you said, like it, it's not easy. Like these kids are not coming in perfect because if they were perfect, they wouldn't need the assistance. Like they come in with, you know, a lot of not so great lived experiences and, and, you know, mental health, you know, uh, situations that they have to kind of deal with and, you know, even like mental and verbal and physical abuse that they've had to sustain their entire lives. And so it's not going to be easy and trying to find adults that, that can work with them for the little pay that they're getting with all the training and all the paperwork that has to go through it is, is tough. And, um, you know, it, it, it takes time, but on top of the, the time that it takes in order to work with these kids and at risk youth, you know, it also takes a lot of money. And if we were willing to give the money towards it, like we could see some of those results a bit faster. But I mean, if we, if our government really wanted to do it, they would, and they could, they have the means. They just decide every day, they wake up every day and decide not to, because it's easier that way. They've got somebody they can pin all their problems on. I feel like if they cut our police budget in like half, <laughs> even just half, they could build like, triple the amount of like tiny homes they have and pay way more staff like and it would be so worth it and way more beneficial for the community than the police ever have been yeah and create the safer community that they actually say that they want but that's not really what they want they want the police state and they could have staffed social workers that are crisis trained and better at dealing with those situations no because what, once no, you get rid of the problem then then what's the next thing that they get to hold on to how else are they going to get reelected? Stop it. They have, to, they have to have their enemy. They have to have their talking That's point. True. They can make climate change their enemy as it should be. <laughs> we we get all the help that we wanted. Uh, yeah. 
but then that's going to cut into the capitalist profit too because combating climate change yeah combating climate change is going to cut into their bottom line nobody can make money if the world is like functioning and happy i guess right which should be the goal we don't need money money didn't always exist yeah we can go back to bartering and you know just like being nice people (laughs) yeah those billionaires would rather die with billions in their pocket knowing that all that money in the world isn't going to save them from them destroying the planet which I don't get like you have all that money like what are you why like what do you need it for to go see the Titanic obviously they didn't even get to go see the Titanic it didn't even have (laughs) windows on it it was a soda can I'm gonna start I'm gonna start crowdfunding to for to send more billionaires to the Titanic (laughs) again I live on TikTok I guess there's a guy on TikTok his name's like I think it's like Perlman 500 on TikTok. And he was like, if you want to trick a billionaire and get them to pay you a ton of money, just build a tube and send it somewhere, either space, the ocean, doesn't matter. Just build a tube and seal them in there. <laughs> Some, I, cannot the the future. <laughs> I cannot believe you went to the, to the, to the Titan. Oh my, it, it's not too soon. It's not too soon. Not that. too soon. I started Never immediately. I started, but I started making the jokes before they even knew what happened. The only person I'm, I'm also on Team Titan. Orca, by the way. Sink those yachts. Yes, Team Orca, except for any other situation, because they're assholes. Wow. All the of assholes the dolphins and bully are. the yachts, but not the whales. Don't bully the other That's whales, <laughs> But did you see like the sub that they went down in? It didn't have any windows. It was just a metal tube and it had like a camera screen. Yeah. And, and like that, when I found that part out, I was like, like, what are y'all doing? Like, why would you pay $250,000? Like, you're actually not going to see the Titanic. Like, you're right. only going to see it on a, on a screen, which means that you could have seen it on the History Channel. You could watch the YouTube first 10 Oscar minutes of Titanic, the movie. And seen it right then and there. <laughs> it, and, and then even, even if you're at Ocean Gate, like I have a father that CEO, like, and I know that they are willing to pay that type of money and actually not see it in real life. I would just pretend that we were going down. On the like video that looks like you're going further and further down and just at some point in time, it's just all pitch black. And then after three days down there, then it's like, oh, voila, guess what? Like we are at the Titanic with some pre-recorded video that's been running for 72 hours. Like, why would you have to go all the way down there to go see it on a TV screen? Like. I'm sorry. Like, if I'm Ocean Gate, like, I would have just completely fleece those people and called it a day. I'd have right? It, it would have made more sense. Yeah. Uh, we went out, we'd went out to the ocean, and I would have just went ahead and just kind of left that little left that little Titan thing, like, 100 feet below the surface of the of the ocean and left it there for three days and then brought them back up. Congratulations. Amy. Right. Because they would know. know, like, in the ocean, like, you're just bouncing around. Like, you don't know if you're going up or down. Like, No, you're disoriented, <laughs> and they're happy. They don't care. They were, somebody on TikTok was like, I would have just, like you said, dropped him in like 100 feet and left him and then just played like the first like 10 minutes of Titanic on a loop. <laughs> they wouldn't know the difference because James Cameron already sent the subs down there to get the footage. They're already there. <laughs> I'm convinced that rich people will just uh, risk death just to be able, because it's the exclusivity of, of it, right? Yeah. 
you poor people can't do this. I did this, right? It's right. It's the same reason like we see it in fashion and, and in all these other things too, right? Things become status symbols until average people get to get them and then suddenly they have to change to something else. It's just more of that only, you know, on a different level. Yeah. Or they take shit from like the poorer people like Champion, the brand that was at Walmart when I was like a kid and it was like $10 for a shirt. And now it's like 200. Why? Yes, in Why? high school, like we would have been caught dead wearing champion anything. Yeah, and all of a sudden, absolutely like, no one. now it is a style. I'm like, what is what is wrong with y'all? And it's outrageously expensive now. Like have you noticed Carhartt has become a status brand in some circles? We wore that because we were actually out fucking working on the farm. And if you wore that uh, around other people they saw you as you know oh you're la- you know oh you have to like you know work <laughs> no <laughs> carhartt is it's huge it's in it is carhartt is huge, huge mm-hmm. and it's people just wearing it like at home or like to the grocery store like not doing shit in it but they got it <laughs> it's wild to me rich people are dumb i hate them <laughs> Just stop being rich, y'all. Just stop being rich and all your problems will be solved. <laughs> Especially when you factor in the fact that like most rich people don't just get rich on their own. That rags riches story is few and far in between. Like they inherited from somebody else. Like y'all didn't earn it the way that you think that you did. Yeah. Oh no, they are all self-made. Don't you know that? I'm yeah, self-made yeah. From, from dad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, like, I mean, one of the things that all that money buys them is it buys them. Like my best friend said, the buys them the benefit of the doubt. Like they get to go out there and trial and error over and over and over again. Um, yeah. So they get to kind of learn on the job without any consequences until they actually get something right. But we all could do that if we had unlimited experiences and unlimited chances and unlimited resources and just keep fucking up until we actually got something right. The rest of us just have to fuck up and pay the consequences. <laughs> yep. Uh. All right. Yeah, y'all have anything else? <laughs> no, but I would like to say fuck capitalism again. <laughs> there we go. Fuck capitalism. Yeah. yeah. I uh, go orcas. Yep. Um, I think before we, but I think the last thing I'd like to say is that, like, especially coming off of today's uh, what July first, that we've officially left Pride Month. Um, but in thinking about like the origins of the Black Panther Party, starting because of police brutality. And even thinking about uh, a few days ago, like the anniversary of a Stonewall, um, people don't necessarily people don't always realize that like a lot of these events that start off these big monumental um, events in, in our country and, and for social progress happen because of resistance to police, and uh, like that's the, that that's the part of society that really has to begin to change. Um, and sure, like Pride has grown into something a bit differently, but like we can't forget these folks that created um, these monumental events in our history for social justice um, and the incredible risks that they took in order to, to fight and resist against the police. And uh, no matter like what your identity is, no matter what your walk of life is, I can almost guarantee that whatever your identity is from some from some marginalized portion of, of your being, um, there, was some, there was some event here in this country that started because of police, police brutality, police violence and uh, 
and uh, the rejection of that. And so uh, if that's the one thing that we can use in order to combine ourselves in order to fight against a, uh, a common enemy, then uh, that's what we need to do. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. And to be sure you never miss an upload, make sure you turn your notifications on. And please come join us on social media so we can continue these conversations in between episodes. You'll find us at Hapoxia Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok.